Well, so me and Nikki often have chats when we go to bed, and we chat about different things, but I remember a few months ago, you have been encouraged to hear that, but a few months ago, um, after we'd sort of heard of some Christians that had been martyred um, across the globe, um, we'd asked ourselves the question, how would we, how would we um, handle the situation if we were put in that situation, if we were asked to denounce our faith um, to save our lives? Well, it's a thrill a minute and a real buzz being with us at those chats in the evening. But, but it's, it's something that maybe you've thought about yourselves. Now, Kenny talked about last week. Now, this is not something that we face necessarily in the West, is it, in our society today. But it does happen across the world. But there is still hostility towards Christianity in this country. Now, specifically, I'm talking about by, uh, people that believe, so biblical, biblically, I can't even speak now at the moment, sorry, uh, Bible-believing Christians. If we really hold firm to, to what the Bible says, for Christians that really hold firm to that, then there is persecution and hostility that we face for believing those things. You see, as, as more and more things that we talk about and preach about and hear about and read about in the Word are becoming, as the media put it, outdated. They're said to be outdated. It's a book that was written 2,000 years ago. What's the, point of, what's the point of it? We face false accusations of sexism, maybe homophobia, or not being relevant to this modern-day world, but there is clearly a hostility to Christianity. We've heard over the last few years of, of individuals that have, been, um, have lost their jobs. We heard about the woman who was wearing a crucifix uh, as, a ho- as an air hostess or an air steward, and she lost her job for refusing to take off her cross. We hear about the nurse who offered prayer to her patients and was struck off. We hear of parents that have taken their children out of school at times because of the curriculum that's been taught. And they face being ostracised, ignored and looked over. There is a lot of things that happen. A lot of hostility and it's only growing. These things have really happened and are happening more and more. And we are, as Christians, often misunderstood, mocked. But this is not strange. In fact, Peter shows us that. That's what this letter is talking into. It's to be expected. After all, we are, as Peter puts it in verse 1, we are exiles. We are exiles. That means we are foreigners in a foreign land. This earth is not our home. Heaven is our ultimate home. Guys, as we seek to live godly lives, as we seek to obey what Jesus calls us to, like our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago, We will face persecution, mockery and hostility. Suffering is normal for Christians. In fact, it's it's promised. But I think the questions that today's passage I've found really helpful in answering or giving me encouragement is in is how do I know that in the face of opposition and hostility that my faith is going to persevere to the end? How do I know that? How can I be sure or think of the hard times that might come and, and tempt us to, to compromise what we believe in order to fit into society. How do we know that we're going to persevere through to the end? Or maybe, maybe you're wrestling with this. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you've caved in and you have compromised and you have either denounced your faith or not stood up for Jesus in some way. Is there any way back from that? 
How do we encourage someone who's facing hostility at the moment? How do we encourage our brother or sister in Christ in the workplace that is facing hostility for their faith? Well, this passage, I think, is really helpful. Because Peter's going to remind us, he's going to encourage us that that as believers, as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, we can have a secure standing before a sovereign God and know that we will persevere to the end if we are truly his. And I love this about this book. This is Peter, after all, that's writing this. The Apostle Peter. Peter, the Apostle of Jesus Christ, as he names himself here. If there's anyone that can reassure Christians at any space and any time of their security of salvation, in the face of hostility, in the face of maybe caving in and giving in, it is Peter. After all, what did he do? Three times. He said he didn't know Jesus. In fact, he cursed. I don't know this guy. In the face of pressure, he failed. He failed big time. And so, enjoy with me listening to the words that Peter uses to encourage us as Christians in the face of hostility that you can stand firm and you will stand firm. Jesus restored him. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Peter fails and yet he is restored. Peter, the guy that Jesus says, you'll be the rock that I build my church upon, is left in tatters, isn't it, at that stage when he denounces Christ. And yet, it all comes true. Jesus restores him. And now he's encouraging Christians everywhere who are facing hostility. Stand firm, he says in in his letter later on. Stand firm. And he calls him, if you turn to chapter 5, verse 12... Stand firm on the true grace of God. That's what Peter encourages us to stand firm on, the true grace of God. And so in these verses, I think that we see six wonderful gifts, six wonderful true graces of God that will help us stand firm in hostility. That will help us know that there's a security that we have, that he will, that our faith will persevere to the end. Six truths, six gifts, six graces of of God that we can encourage other people in their faith as they go through difficulties and challenges. So firstly, Christian, we can stand firm on the true grace of God that we have been chosen in the Father's foreknowledge. Verses 1 and 2a. Now, I'll be honest with you. Having worked on this, I've probably given them five weeks, five sermons on each verse, actually. Um, and so I'm going to do a, a whistle-stop tour. But I think these are really, really fundamental truths that we need to know. So the first one is that we have been chosen in the Father's foreknowledge. Let's look at this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, his exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Wonderful verses. But I just want to ask you a couple of questions, first of all. If you believe Jesus was God, put your hand up. If you believe that Jesus was God, put your hand up. If you believe Jesus was a man, put your hand up. Okay. So, both are right, aren't they? Both, both are right. He was both God and both man. How that plays out, theologians have spent hundreds of years talking about. But if you believe Peter wrote the first, uh, wrote the letters of Peter, put your hand up if you think Peter wrote the letters. 
Someone may have helped him, but he wrote it. Hands up if you think the Holy Spirit wrote Peter's letter. Brilliant. Again, both are right, aren't they? Intention. How can it be true that two people wrote it, but Peter wrote it, inspired by the Holy Spirit? These are not contradictions, but we're not choosing between one or the other. It's both of these things and these things. Both and. But also, Peter teaches in this letter, and over his two letters, he teaches two things. He teaches that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but that everyone, he wants to come to repentance. He wants everybody to come to repentance. But also here at the start of his letter, he talks about divine election. And he's encouraging these uh, uh, believers that are reading this, that they have been chosen in God's foreknowledge. That it's not an accident, they believe, that they've been chosen from before time began. That's what it means to, to be foreknown by God. It's not merely to, that God foresaw that those that come to faith would come to faith. He didn't just foresee it and guess that those people would come to faith. He set his love on you before time began. If you know and love Jesus, from some point in your life you come to know and love Jesus, it's because God set his love on you before time began, before the world even started. In eternity. It's not an accident. But how can both divine election be true and God also wanting all to come to him be true as well? How can that be true? Well, there are some things that our minds, our human minds, are limited in. We can't grasp or understand these things fully. But God, and Peter makes it clear here, God does elect those that he foreknew, but he also offers faith, the opportunity to believe to everybody. And I have to thank Kenny for this, because he gave me a very helpful Charles Spurgeon um, illustration that might be, hopefully will be helpful. Spurgeon says this, he goes, Imagine a door... That, is, that opens into heaven. On the earthly side of the door, it says, whoever so, whosoever um, come in. Whosoever come in. And then as you step in and you look back and you look at the door from behind, there's a sign that says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Both are true. Both are in the Bible and both are true. And we'll need about 10 sermons to go into the details of it. But I just want to encourage us. And remember that this is Peter talking into a situation of people in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, facing hostility for Jesus. And they may be thinking, has God forgotten me in this? All this stuff is going on. It's horrendous. It's difficult. Has God forgotten us? Because often sometimes when hardship comes, we can fall into thinking, that where is God in this? Where is God? How can this be fair? And maybe you're in a moment like that at, at, at the moment. Maybe you're, you're doubting that God is there in your suffering and in your pain or in your persecution, in the hostility you might be facing for your faith. But Peter's reminding them, he hasn't forgotten you. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. He has not forgotten you. He's in control. He is sovereign. That means he's in control of everything. And because you've been chosen, means we belong to him. Albert Moeller says this in his book. He says, if before the creation of the world, God chose you, he is hardly going to let you go now. Guys, when we're facing difficulty, when we're facing hostility for our faith, 
God has not departed. He has not left you. He is with you. He has known you from before the foundation of the world. He chose you. He is not going to let you go now. What a great truth we can stand firm on. What a great gift we have been given, that we have been chosen, that we can offer to other people and encourage other people in their difficulties in. But secondly, Christian, we can stand firm on the true grace of God that the Holy Spirit is bringing about your obedience in a hostile world. There is something going on that is happening in this hostile world that God is using in you. And it's the Holy Spirit at work. It's a, a, Peter says, um, um, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood in verse 2. You see, there is a, the, the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. And that is a posh word for saying he's setting you apart for something special. And that thing that he's setting you apart for, something special, is he's setting you apart to be holy. Peter talks about it later on in his lesson, letter. He, he quotes Leviticus where he says, be holy for I am holy. That's what we're being set apart for, for holiness. And as he puts it here, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose that we've been saved for. It's the purpose that we've been chosen for. God the Father has chosen us, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, sanctifying us, setting us apart for holiness as we pursue obedience to Jesus Christ the Son. In verse 18 and 19 that are amazing, he says, he, says he, he, he who has rescued us from the futility of our former way of life, our elect chosen status is for a purpose of obedience. You are destined for obedience. You're destined to, to not to your former way of life. You have been sprinkled by his blood. That means that Jesus' blood has bought your obedience. Jesus' blood has bought your obedience. On the cross, he bought your obedience. What better purpose is there to be set apart for? And so we are set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus the Son. And it is that, it is that fact that accounts for us being exiles in this land as believers. Accounts us to be exiles in this hostile world. Look at verses 14 and 15 quickly. It says, as children of obedience, do not be conformed to former passions. Do not be conformed to your former passions. Be holy. Holiness, holiness is a non-conformity to the former way of life. Holiness is about a non-conformity to the former way of life. We will face opposition because we are being made holy by the Holy Spirit. You see, the more Christ-like that you become, the less you will conform to the patterns of this world, the more different that you will be, and the greater hostility that is likely to come your way. As we grow in our love for the Lord, as we grow in our obedience to him, we will stand firm and stand up for him and we will more likely face hostility that will come our way. Don't be surprised when your increased obedience in those times where you're walking closely with the Lord, that hostility may come your way. It is as we stand firm in hostility that we give a wonderful gospel example to the world. That's why Israel was chosen to be a people that were different than the rest of the world, to live under God's law, to live under his and be obedient to him. They failed at it, but their job was to be, to make God, know, make God great to the rest of the nations. And that's our role now. 
I remember that as I, when I came to faith, and um, I met with some of my friends last night um, from school, and when I came to faith, um, I had this battle of my former life and my new spiritual life. And the battle was falling back into my old ways of what I was doing and wanting to be liked and accepted by them. And then over the years, as I gradually, as the Lord has changed me, it's not through my undoing, but through the Lord changing me, those friendships and those, um, yeah, those friendships have changed to the point where sometimes I'm ostracised by them. Sometimes I'm not invited to the curry nights. Sometimes they don't want to speak to me. Um, some people I've lost complete touch with because now I'm doing what I'm doing. There is hostility that is faced as we grow in obedience to the Lord. Don't be put off by that. Don't be afraid by that. But know that you've not been left and that he is with you and he has chosen you. And so, um, thirdly, we see that as Christians we can stand firm on the true grace of God. That we have been born again to a living hope. Great, wonderful and famous words. Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I've been present currently, I've been at three births, my own, I can't remember it, Evans and Agnes's, and seem to be a fourth. Um, But I remember the first time when Evan was was born, um, I wasn't particularly scientifically knowing what happens at a birth, other than baby comes out. So, I was telling George this on Saturday morning, some of the guys at the F3 workout. And as um, I, the, the midwife asked me to come down and have a look at the baby coming out, I thought, oh, yes, it's brilliant. As Eben started uh, materialising, I was like, oh, he's got a big forehead, hasn't he? Oh, man, he's got no eyes. I still love you, son. And then I actually let out a, a sight to the midwife, where's his face? <laughs> And then she had to tell me that the face was the other side. So there's a big relief. And um, anyway, I know a little bit more now than I did. But anyway, that story is very tenuous linked to what we're going to be talking about. Um, but his physical birth, Eben's physical birth, as beautiful, well, as, as wonderful as it was, um, doesn't, make him, doesn't make him spiritually alive. Our physical birth, doesn't make us spiritually alive. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, to be part of my kingdom, you need to be born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. So Peter is drawing our attention, his reader's attention, to the amazing true grace of God, the amazing gift that we have been born again, spiritually. We know and love Jesus. And this has been initiated, not on our part, but by the mercy of God. In his great mercy, he has initiated us for new birth. And new birth results in new life. The old is gone, the new has come. A new life that means that we have a life of eternity with Jesus. A new identity, not merely children of our earthly parents, but we are children of the living and true God. What a fact that is. What a truth that is. And we have to look a little bit further down in verse 23 to see what we're born again of. We are born by the word of God. That is the seed, this spiritual birth that leads to a life that will never end. Physical birth results from a seed that dies eventually. But new birth springs from the undying seed through, the, through God's undying word. 
And that word we see in verse 25, what is that word? What is the word of God? It's the good news that was preached to us. The good news that has been preached to us. That is the life. That is the seed that has been given to us. The good news that God has sent his son to forgive us for our sins, to make a way for us to be back in relationship with him. And we are made spiritually alive. New life. You see, there is power in reading God's word. There is power in hearing it preached. There is power in sharing it with other people. It saves people. It saved us. And it keeps encouraging us and speaking to us each and every day. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes you may think, why do I come and listen to a sermon every Sunday? Well, because the Spirit is at work. He is speaking to us. He is working at changing us and making us more obedient. But it's also there so that people can come to faith. Come to new life and have spiritual, be spiritually born to a new hope. Not a hope that we're going to pass our exams or go to a great school or get married or have a family, all those things. But a living hope in a future event. A future event that we will go to be in heaven forever. And we've been brought into heaven, not based on earth. But it says here, Peter says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Easter was so special, wasn't it? That we, we don't celebrate nothing. We celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate Jesus Christ who defeated death, came back to life. Physically, not merely spiritually, he physically came back to life. Appeared to 500 people. That is where our hope is. In a living person. And his resurrection. Jesus was beaten, mocked and scorned and killed, but he didn't stay dead. If he did, our our faith would be in vain. Us coming together and meeting together on a Sunday would be pointless. But he rose from the dead, and so death does not have the last word for him or for us. And guys, as hostility rises for those of us who are Christians in in our society, we can rest in the true grace of God that we have a living hope. A hope in the resurrection to come for us. And so, for me... When I had that chat with Nikki in the, middle, in the early hour, well, late at night, about what would we do in that situation, it does mean that we don't need to fear death. But I think death is the thing that probably leads to the greatest anxiety in people's lives, isn't it? The thought of what's next. And as believers, we can be assured that death is not the end for us. We need not fear it. And therefore, we need not fear opposition, no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter what happens to us. We will follow Jesus from death to life. I was um, just speaking to um, one of the Americans that um, works with Second City on student outreach. And she was just sharing um, last Monday that she's been uh, bumping into meeting up with a girl, um, a Muslim girl, on on uh, Aston University. And after a few meetings, this, this girl just said to her, I really see in your faith that you actually have a hope. Now, she hasn't come to faith, but she sees generally there's a difference in Christianity to her faith. She sees a hope, a hope in Brie, the girl that's been sharing with her, a hope that she really believes this and knows that this is true. And she wants that. Doesn't believe yet, but she sees there's something different. That is the hope that we can show and share with those around us. Being different, 
Not being fearful of what happens next. What a great hope we have to offer and to show. Well, fourthly, Christian, we can stand firm on the true grace of God that we have an imperishable inheritance. Verse 4, an inheritance that cannot fade, uh, can never perish, spoil or fade. Not only do we have the promise of a future resurrection, but we have the promise of a future inheritance. And it's an inheritance that, unlike the inheritance that we can gain or gather from our parents, uh, money, houses, belongings, things we can't take with, with us, this is an inheritance from our Father God that we take with us. An inheritance that can never spoil or fade because it is heaven. It's there. It's waiting for us. Because we have been reborn as God's seed his children, his inheritance is our inheritance. And guess what? It's our right as his children to gain that inheritance. Isn't that amazing? It's our right. And it cannot be corrupted or taken away. It has been won by Jesus. I want you to imagine for a minute this future inheritance. Let's first of all um, imagine your worst experience in life. It's the worst thing that's happened. As we think about that, this guaranteed inheritance that we have will make that just a distant memory. Not hard to believe. The things that we hold on to, the, the hurts and the pains that have happened that we just can't let go of, that we experience in this life, will be like a distant memory when we receive that inheritance. But equally, if you think of the best thing that's ever happened to you, the most amazing thing that's ever happened to you, like realising Eben had a face... <laughs> Even that will pale into, into, into insignificance compared to what it's going to be like when we receive our future inheritance. You see, this is the hope that we can cling to in the face of hostility. This is the hope that we get to offer other people, other believers. This is the hope, and just think about these four, I don't know if you heard about this, but four Muslim converts at Second City over the last few weeks that have come to faith. This is the hope that they can take with them when they're being ostracised by their family threatened to be excommunicated. This is not our final home. We will receive a place in heaven. And that is secured. And finally, just to say, I mean, fifthly, there was six. I might come on to the sixth, we'll see. But um, Christian, we can stand firm on the true grace of God that we, are guard, that we are shielded by God or we are guarded by God. How do we know that, I will keep, how do we know that we're going to keep the faith to the end? And the answer is because it's secured in heaven for us already. It is God who keeps his children. It is God who keeps us. Isn't that amazing? He's going to protect us. He's going to guard us. And I love that word, as shields. In the ESV, it's called guards. It, it uses guarded. And that word guards means to be watched over. Continually watched over in order to defend against something bad that might happen. That is the promise for us. He is guarding us. He will protect us. And we may be asking ourselves the question, well, how can he be guarding us if all this suffering and hostility is happening to us? The greatest threat to us persevering in our faith is unbelief. If we lose our faith, the author of Hebrews says, we will lose our reward. But God, it is God who guards us. It's God who guards our faith. It says that in 1 Peter 1.5. It is God who sustains our faith by his power. Especially when it's hard. This has really encouraged me this week. It's him that keeps us. And I love that picture of him keeping us. Him keeping us in the faith. Him um, sustaining us in the midst of difficulty. He hasn't left us 
in our suffering. And the promise is that he will guard us. He will guard us. Even anything that threatens our faith, he will guard us. Maybe you're experiencing this now, the hostility of being in a difficult workplace for your faith. Maybe within your family members, you're facing hostility or just difficulty or that underlying challenge whenever you go meet up with that family member. God promises to watch over you. He will keep you. He will sustain you. And it's all based on his own power, not on ours. So when we maybe risk not standing up for Christ or cave in, God will keep you. It's not the end. Peter knows that better than anyone else. Even when we fail, God will keep you. He will guard you. And then just really quickly, finally, the true graces of God that have been given to us lead us to praise. Look what he says in verse 3. Just put, your, your, just put yourself in Peter's place. After what everything he's gone through, and he's writing this letter, read these words with the passion that he would be writing them. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It leads us to praise. That's what he wants the believers to be led to, is to praise for all these wonderful truths that God has been at work. He has chosen them before the time began. He foreknew them. He has given them a, a re, he's, uh, made them born, be, be born again to a living hope. Their salvation is secure. It's kept in heaven for them. An imperishable inheritance. And he will keep them. He will keep them in the faith no matter what's going on. It's down to him. And it is down to us to turn to him in those times. Not to lead ourselves away in disbelief or unbelief, but to turn to him. He will help you persevere in the faith to the end. That's what we can encourage people in. We can encourage one another in and ourselves in. But it leads us to praise. And that's how we're going to finish our time together now. We're going to spend some time in some worship. Um, can I encourage us just to imagine, just take a few moments as I walk over there to lead us in this time, um, just to think about that inheritance that we have to come. Maybe think about a situation where you have um, felt that you have not done justice to Christ. And remember that you're forgiven. Remember that it's not the end. And remember that he will hold you fast in all situations.